My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to Season 2 of the 21st Century Creative. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands and distractions, challenges and opportunities of this crazy century we're embarking on. My name is Mark McGuinness. I'm a poet and a coach for creative professionals, and I've created the show to share what I've learned on the creative path as well as the wisdom and experience of my guests. And if you're a returning listener from season one, welcome back. It's been a little while, Um, a bit longer than I'd intended, but I'm very glad to be back. And a special thank you to all of you who sent me your feedback on season one and requests for topics to cover in season two. Really great to know you're enjoying the show and finding it helpful. So, just to recap how the show works. During a season, I will send out a new episode every Monday. In the first part of the show, I will talk for a bit about some of my own ideas to help you grow as a person, as a creator, and as a professional. And in the second part, I'll interview a guest who is doing great work in the arts or the creative industries or maybe as an entrepreneur, or in some field of personal development that's very relevant to you as a creative. If you want more background on the show, you can go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm and listen to the very first episode, right down at the bottom of the page. That's episode one of season one, where I give a bit of a longer introduction to the show and what it's all about. Okay, so this season... Just as we did before, I have carefully chosen my guests to bring you a balance of inspiring art and commercial success, personal development and professional guidance. And in the interviews for this season, among other people, you will hear from a musician who has toured the world and performed at Live Eight, a leading poet reading and discussing her poetry, a jeweller who travels the globe in order to create unique and priceless pieces of jewellery, and a TV host who shares what it's like to interview A-list celebrities. This week, I'm delighted that we're starting with a very special guest, Tina Roth-Eisenberg, known to many of you as Swiss Miss, who tells how she went from a small town in rural Switzerland to becoming a successful designer and entrepreneur in New York City. As always, I encourage you to listen to all the interviews in the series, regardless of whether you're working in the same field as my guest. And it's not just because I've spent so long recording them all. (laughs) It's because what I'm most interested in and what I ask my guests about are the essential factors that are common to any creative career. Things like motivation, mindset, resilience in the face of adversity. So, For example, if I interview a novelist, then we will talk about her novels, but we won't go into the same level of detail about the craft of writing or the business of publishing that you might find on a writer's podcast. Mostly, I'll ask about her motivations as a writer, her creative process, her path to success, and also how she's dealt with the obstacles that appeared in her way. Some of the best emails I've received from listeners have started by saying, I didn't think I'd be particularly interested in this interview as I'm working in a completely different field, but I found it surprisingly interesting and moving to hear about this person's journey, and it really resonated with my own situation. And in a way, I want this podcast to be a bit like my own coaching practice, because I have the most rewarding job and the most interesting week full of conversations, because I work with creatives across the whole spectrum of the arts and the creative industries, as well as entrepreneurs. Now, this means I can't do the things that they can do technically, but I can help them to work on themselves, 
on their creativity, on their professional development, and on their business. Because, you know, the fundamentals of these are what they all have in common, which is great, but I can only work with a certain number of clients at a time. So by making this podcast, I want to share with you what I learn and practice week in and week out as a writer myself and as a coach to help you grow as a person and achieve your ambitions as a creative. So if you want to read the show notes for each episode of the show, or if you ever want to contact me with feedback about the show, you can go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm where there's an archive of every episode. You just click through and you'll get the show notes for any particular episode. There's also a contact form on that page so you can leave me feedback, requests for topics, etc. If you want to make sure you receive every episode of the show as soon as it comes out, then of course make sure you're subscribed in iTunes. And if you're ever interested in getting my help as a private coaching client, you can go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching to learn more about the work I do with clients. Okay, there's just one more thing before we plunge into the show, and that's a slight change of format from season one. Now, one part of the show that got a great response in season one was the creative challenge where I invite each guest to set you, the listener, a challenge to help you put the ideas from the interview into practice in your own life. In season one, I made the challenge something for you to complete the same week the show went out, and we gave away prizes and a special feedback recording based on the comments you left on the blog. Now, that was great for those of you who listened promptly every Monday and completed the challenge by Friday. But I ended up getting a lot of emails from people who said they listened to the show after the deadline had passed, and so they missed out on the prizes and the feedback. So it took a lot of time for me to run the challenge that way and create the bonus materials and send out logistics of sending out all the prizes to people across the globe. And when I realized how many of you were listening after the deadline, I decided I'd be better off using that time to make the rest of the show better rather than doing all those extras. So, this season, you will still get the creative challenge from my guest every week. Rest assured it's not going away. But it will be for you to do in your own time, and there's no need to leave a comment on the blog, unless you want to, because obviously it's always great to read your comments and what you did with the show. There you go. When you try something new, it doesn't always work out the way you expect. And that's okay. I wanted to do the challenge with a weekly deadline, and I wondered why other podcasts didn't do this kind of thing. <laughs> so I guess I learned the answer to that one. But I'm keeping the challenge itself, as I do want this to be a useful and practical show for you, as well as hopefully an entertaining one. Okay, that's it for the news and housekeeping. Let's get started on season two of the 21st Century Creative. I'd like to introduce you to someone important. I call this person the bigger you. The bigger you is the version of you who shows up when you're facing your biggest challenges or at those moments when you're in the zone, performing at your very best. In my own work, I hear the voice and I see the hand of the bigger me in the poems I'm most proud of when I read them and they seem strange and surprising to me and I wonder how I managed to write them. The bigger me has also come to my rescue lots of times when I was feeling stuck or out of options, or, frankly, terrified by the task in front of me. Like the time my company was pitching for a big training contract, and my business partner, our star trainer, wasn't available to run the crucial pilot workshop. At this point of my career, I was new to training and public speaking, and I certainly was not a seasoned professional. When we booked the pilot... I was supposed to be the assistant trainer while my partner took the lead. And I'd been told that the delegates for the pilot programme would be a demanding group who were told to evaluate the course and decide whether to give it the thumbs up or the thumbs down. It was the last situation I would have chosen for my first attempt at running a course on my own. But when it came to it, I was faced with a decision 
run the course myself or walk away from a contract I'd spent months working to bring in. Of course I decided to do it, and of course I was terrified. I hardly slept at all the night before in the hotel. I had to force myself to eat some breakfast the next morning. Waiting alone in the training room, it felt like I was waiting for the firing squad. And yet, when the delegates arrived, as if by magic, the bigger me showed up. He took charge of the situation. He welcomed the group. He led them through the activities. He entertained them with stories. He helped them when they got stuck. He answered their questions. He dealt with one or two challenging situations. And at the end of it, he got rave reviews on the feedback forms, which meant we got the green light to go ahead with the big contract. Sitting on the London Underground on the way home, I wondered what had happened. It almost felt like an out-of-body experience. You've probably had similar experiences yourself, at times of crisis or in times of inspiration. The bigger you showed up and you surprised yourself by doing or saying or creating something you'd never have thought possible until that moment. After this has happened a few times, you can even start to relax a bit and trust that the bigger you will show up and help you handle whatever life throws at you. In my case, as the years and the projects went by, I was less and less surprised each time the bigger me showed up, and more and more confident that he would show up. A few years after that baptism of fire as a corporate trainer, I received my first invitation to cross the Atlantic and speak at a conference in the United States. I was told there would be about seven or 800 people in the audience, which was a lot bigger than any audience I'd spoken to up to that point. I was having a drink with a friend and telling her about it when she asked if I was nervous. Not really, I said. It won't be me who has to do it. Now, it sounded odd, but it was true. If Mark, who was sitting at the bar having a pint on a Friday night, suddenly found himself on stage in front of 800 people, he'd have been in trouble. But I knew that by the time I walked out on the stage in Boston, I'd have done my preparation. I'd have gone through my pre-talk routines and rituals so that I would walk out there as the bigger mark. So I didn't worry about the presentation itself. I concentrated on my own preparations and trusted that it would be fine on the day, which it was. Now, preparation is important because trusting the bigger you doesn't mean doing nothing and waiting for the good fairy to appear and wave a magic wand. It means doing your research or your daily practice or your rehearsals or whatever it is that you need to do to lay the groundwork, and then leaving a door open for the bigger you to step through. One way of leaving this door open is to have a ritual that you go through before you start work. It could be as simple as brewing your favourite coffee and putting on your favourite music, or it could be much more complex and ritualistic, involving meditation or exercise or eating certain types of food or or being the first or the last one out of the dressing room on the way to a performance. Whatever kind of ritual you use, and however silly or superstitious it might appear from a logical viewpoint, it actually serves an important purpose of sending out an invitation to the bigger you. So, each day, before you start your work, ask yourself, how can I invite the bigger me into my work today? If you're enjoying the 21st Century Creative, you may like to know there is more to this podcast than meets the ear. To help you succeed in your creative career or business, I've created an in-depth program, the 21st Century Creative Foundation Course. It covers the personal and professional skills you'll need to succeed as a creative professional in the 21st century. In other words, the stuff they probably didn't teach you at art school on your creative writing masters, or wherever else you learned your craft. Things like how to manage your time, how to communicate your ideas, how to handle difficult conversations, how to close a sale, how to deal with money, how to grow your network, and how to attract an audience for your work. Altogether, there are 26 lessons in the course, full of practical advice, 
plus a worksheet for each one to help you put the ideas into practice. And I'm giving you the entire course for free. In case you can't quite believe your ears, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course and see for yourself. When you get there, you can sign up with just an email address and you'll get your first lesson right away. By the way, the course has already been taken by over 11,000 students. And on the sign-up page, you'll see lots of testimonials from other creatives whose lives and careers have been changed by the course. You can join them right now for free by going to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. Tina Roth Eisenberg is a designer and entrepreneur based in New York City. She's known to millions of readers as Swiss Miss, which is the title of her blog where she's been sharing design inspiration since 2005. As the name suggests, she's originally from Switzerland, and she created a new life and several businesses for herself in the US. Her ventures include Friends Work Here, a co-working space, Tatley, a temporary tattoo business, Tudor, a productivity app, and Creative Mornings, a series of free lectures for creatives currently taking place in 183 cities all around the world. She's just launched the LinkedIn of the creative world called Creative Guild. She is a leading figure in the design community, on her blog, as a public speaker, and most of all as an enthusiastic creator. I first came across Tina when I started my own blog back in 2006, and hers was already super popular. Since then, I've followed her adventures from a distance, partly out of admiration and partly out of sheer curiosity to see what she'll come up with next. In this conversation, Tina tells us about her journey from a small town in rural Switzerland to becoming a successful creative entrepreneur in New York City, with an audience and network spanning the globe. She talks about the challenges she faced and the amazing opportunities that emerged as if by magic when she followed her creative instincts to work on a series of labours of love, however unusual or commercially unviable they looked at first. She has interesting things to say about the opportunities that can come to you if you're generous in sharing your work and your ideas, and she also has an unusual take on the challenge of bringing up children while running your own business. Listen to Tina's interview and you'll experience a shining example of a 21st century creative. Inspiring, generous, outward-looking and consistently surprising. Tina. What made you want to be a designer? Uh, you're going deep right away, huh? Um, uh-huh. Well, uh, well, I don't know. I guess I was one of those kids that just always was drawn to, you know, doing creative stuff and, uh, you know, always drawing, always, you know, whatever creative thing there was to do, I would jump on it. But I do vividly remember uh, the moment where I realized that uh you could make a living as a designer. And it's something I think back a lot now that I have children. And like, it's so, it, you know, those magical moments where you connect the dots as a kid. And it was, it was mm-hmm. in, I was on vacation with uh, my family and my aunt. I had this very eccentric, wonderfully eccentric creative aunt that was sort of my role model in terms of just how she lived a courageous creative life. And she had a partner at the time who was a graphic designer. I didn't really know what the concept was, you know, being a graphic designer, but I think I was around seven and we were in South of France and I watched him draw this huge poster and draw type, you know, granted this is pre-computers. And I was so mesmerized. He was so talented. He was like my superhero. And then at one point I was watching him. I say, well, what is this? What are you doing? And he says, I'm working. You know, is this an assignment I have? And I was like, wait a second, as in, you know, I really connected the dots as in like, wait, he's doing this yeah. and he's making money. And I said, you're making money? Mm. (laughs) He says, yeah, this is my job. (laughs) And I remember just like the light bulb went off. I was like, I could make a living being creative. And I'm forever grateful for that moment. And it's something Mm. that I often think about now with my children. It's like, what's that light bulb moment for them? You know, what's their interest? Am I actually 
able to make that connection for them. Let's say, you know, clearly I, I can expose them to a lot of creative people. But like, what's, what if my daughter wants to become a scientist? I don't really have a lot of scientists in my life. <laughs> how do I make that connection? Right. Yeah. yeah. So how did you pursue that? <laughs> my parents were both entrepreneurs. And uh, mm -hmm. going to art school wasn't really the thing they were thrilled about when I came up with that. And, um, and I actually <laughs> tried to make them a... A presentation when I was 20. You know, school system is a bit different in Switzerland. You kind of go to school until you're 20 and then you go off to university. It's all a bit longer. Right. So okay. I did that where you basically do basic studies of, you know, general education and languages and business and all that. So when I was 20, then I was like, okay, now I earned my thing. I did the thing I was supposed to do. And now I'm going to go to art school. And I wanted to go to Parsons here in New York. And I tried to pitch it to my parents. And the minute they heard America, they were like, nope. And he said, if you want to go to art school, which they kind of reluctantly allowed me to, said it has to be in Switzerland. So I just picked the cities the furthest away because I was in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. And then I applied for uh, Geneva, Lausanne and Vivre, I remember, and, uh, which is adorably four hours away by train, which is adorable for Americans, you know, but that's how far mm -hmm. I could go. But uh, <laughs> once I started going to art school and they saw me, how happy I was that I think that sealed the deal. And then I moved to New York after my studies for three months, 19 years ago. Um, and I'm still here. <laughs> and I mean, it may be a dumb question for a creative, but why New York? Uh, you know, I, I, I did an internship in 1989 in San Francisco that really got me into the whole web world. And on the way back, I visited my friend who did an internship at an architecture firm. And I, I stopped in New York for three days. And I remember walking around with him and literally saying every hour, I need to live here. I need to live here. And I, I annoyed the heck out of him. But I just knew that at some point in my life, I need to live in New York, even if it's just for three months. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that when a place really speaks to you, there is a reason for it. I'm a firm believer. I probably lived in New York before uh, in one of my past lives. It's, it's just a place that felt home the minute I arrived. And so I just told myself I'm going to go for three months, really not realizing that it might be forever. But I think it's pretty much forever now. <laughs> and one of the things that's always intrigued me about you is that you're obviously a designer who isn't content to design work for clients or for a boss or for somebody else. Now, this has manifested itself in several ways that we can go mm -hmm. into, but one of the things that you're best known for is your blog. I mean, you were one of the first designers to start a blog. Yeah. What drew you to do that? And what difference does it made to your career? Oh, it's kicked off everything. It's, it's, opened, it's opened the box to so many beautiful things. Well, it was just, you know, at the time I was working um, as a design director at this really wonderful company called Plum Design, which then renamed to uh, ThinkMap. I was surrounded by incredibly smart and curious people. And, you know, like so many other creatives, you would just you know, spend time on the internet and finding interesting things and just doing your, your inspirational research. And uh, I kept sending stuff to my friends. And then one, one day my friend Bridget said, come on, just, just stop emailing this stuff to me. Just put it on a blog. And I'm like, a blog? <laughs> and then I, I researched a bit. I was like, okay, actually, that's a good idea. And it's so funny because it was before there was Pinterest, before Tumblr. There was no easy way to, other than just having a bookmarks folder on your computer, yeah. to save these things. And uh, I remember signing on to TypePad and I remember sitting there going, oh, I need a name for this thing. And everyone calls you Swiss Miss when you're a young woman living in America. And I was like, sure, let's let's call this Swissmiss just as a, on a whim, which was one of the smartest branding moves I think I've ever done. Oh. And and then I started just, um, you know, putting the things I find that made me look, that inspired me, that I wanted to keep sort of as my own little archive on on, on that blog. And after a few months, I, I realized, uh, my friend said, do you notice that a lot of people are linking to you? And I was like, no. And she goes, do you ever look at your stats? And I was like, no, I don't really care. <laughs> and then I started realizing, oh, wow, you know, this is not just my archive anymore. There's a lot of people tuning in. And that was, that was a really beautiful moment. And, and when, when I, at the height of my, of my blog, when the readership was really ridiculously high, I remember these moments when I could feature someone and they would email me afterwards and say, like, you know, you just changed my life. And they would tell me these stories. And to me, that's that's the currency that just makes me happy because I know how hard it is to start out. I know how hard it is to, you know, get 
get some traction when you want to get something in front of people. And still to this day, is, is it makes me really happy when I'm able to feature people that are, had an idea that, you know, are daring to go for it and, and launch into it. So I'm still doing it. It's almost 13 years later, 12 years. Yeah. Right. Well, I was one of those people, Tina. I mean, you may not recall, but there was a piece you linked to way back in, a, must be about 2006 mm-hmm. when I was first starting out. And that was, I think, the first blog post of mine that went viral. Oh, wow. Because after it got picked up by you, it got picked up by several other big design blogs. But, you know, just talking of the stats, I remember looking at the stats and thinking there was something wrong with them. Because (laughs) (laughs) there was this big mountain, it suddenly appeared, and it said, well, if this is true, then thousands of people have been to my blog. And that can't... (laughs) So, you know, that culture of generosity and linking out, you know, like you say, it was one of the things that made me... When I was starting my blog, maybe think, oh wow, this is that you can really get some traction mm-hmm. with this yeah. thing. And to be honest, I actually just really started thinking about this the past few months. I I predict that there will be a huge uh, resurgence of personal sites and blogs uh, this year and and onward. Um, I, I just ca- I can feel it. There there was like a slump for a while, and uh, I I really want to people to be more aware of owning their content. It's something that really drives me crazy how people are so, you know, just just put their stuff on other people's platforms and and where they're the product and they can't even control their own content anymore. It really, I really hope that you know where the pendulum is swinging back and people are more thoughtful again about owning their legacy online. Right. Well, I mean, this is something I had drummed into me by Brian Clark years ago when we worked together. He said, you know, if you put it, and it's great to use the other platforms to leverage, you know, what the network, he said, but you've got to have your own, you know, the center of your own universe mm-hmm. that you own it, you're in control, that's your yep. place. And it's also, it's just a beautiful thing. Like I look at my blog and sometimes I go dig, I dig in my archives and I laugh because I can just see how I as, as a person have grown. Like when I look at some of the stuff I posted, you know, 11 years ago, I, I kind of rolled my eyes backwards a bit, but that's fine. It's, it's just the progression of who I am as a human. And I just truly, truly hope that I can keep this up and running until I'm old. And then maybe my kids one day can, you know, can dig in and say like, oh, look at mom, what she looked at when she was like, you know, in her right. 30s. And that's that alone is just such a beautiful gift. Wow. So your great great grandchildren will be reading comments. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> so I'd like to just pick up on it because it's a question I get quite often if I talk to creatives and I enthuse about the potential of blogging, podcasting, sharing online, you know, whatever whatever the medium. And one of the big objections I get is people saying, well, I, but where am I going to find the time? You know, what, is, it, is it really worth it as opposed to something that's going to pay me, you know, this month or next month? What would you say to that? We have to define what is worth your time. You know, if you, know, if you don't make enough money and you have a hard time getting by, of course you don't want to spend, you know, an hour, two hours blogging a day if it doesn't make you money. But let's say if you're in a fortunate situation like me where, you know, my other jobs uh, cover enough so that I can just continue this as a, as a um, you know a hobby on the side, it just to me, it is an investment in who I am, in what I see, in how people perceive me. In you know, it's just it has the time that I have invested might not have paid off financially, even though for a while there I was I was very lucky to be part of the Deck Network and that that really made it worth. But even if you're a blogger and you don't don't make money of it, it it is I look at it as an investment into myself, into like really making sure that I I I. I keep my eyes open. I keep my antennas out. Um, I, I keep looking at things. I'm trying to collect interestingness on the internet. And the thing is, to be honest, as someone someone that hires people now regularly, the minute I get a cover letter, uh, an application in front of me, and that sounds interesting, the first thing I do is like, who are they on the internet? What do they share? What's their tone? Are they interested? Are they mm-hmm. curious? And I will hire people just based on the fact that, you know, they're just interested people in, and, and they share and they're generous and they, you know, and they you can tell they want to grow as humans. And, and I feel like this is just part of my personal growth that I just force myself to keep this up. And does this relate to your, there's a lovely quote that I came across from you where you said, I believe in labors of mm-hmm. love. Labors of love always pay mm-hmm. off. What did you mean um, by that? Well, so I'm a big believer that when you create something that you just want to exist because it's just a fire in your heart, 
right? And not out of, ooh, this is going to make me rich. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I've just learned that when I create something that just I want to exist in the world because I just it it feels a need or it fixes a problem, and I I've never started anything with the goal of this making me money. In the end, for example, uh, the blog was always a labor of love. I was always I've, I've always been very generous in in shining the light on people uh, whose work I admired. And then by itself, it started making money when, you know, Jim Kudal from the Deck Network knocked on my door. And eventually it allowed me to go, to go clientless for a year when I realized I really didn't like the service industry. And and at the time, I, I you know, I made a substantial amount with my blog and I was, this is an unreal, like I was able to go clientless for a year, still cover my portion of the cost, you know, at the time when I was married. And uh, that just happened organically. I was like, it felt like the universe was telling me, Tina, what you're doing is great. Keep doing. And here's, here's, you know, and here you can justify it. And the money just came on its own. And in that year of magical thinking, as I called it, um, I, I opened up and started other labors of love, like Creative Mornings, uh, started as a never intended to make money, quite the opposite because the business model is so backwards, you know, a free lecture series for everyone around the world. And that also eventually, because I think I just, it was so real and so from the heart and so innocent that it, 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 the money comes on its own eventually. If you're just patient and keep fueling it with your love and from, and you create this from the heart, um, it just, all of these things, like Tetley as well. Tetley was a side project. I just wanted to support my artist friends. And, you know, I was done with ugly temporary tattoos and never imagining that it would become a business. Now we have like uh, 12 full-time employees. And again, um, it, all of these things, I wanted to exist, never with the intention of, you know, making money with them. And because I did start them as a side project, as a labor of love, uh, I feel like you make decisions from a completely different place than when you say, okay, this will be my business, this will pay my rent, I need to optimize. So the, not that that's a wrong way to go about it, but just me personally, when I come from this innocent place of this just being a playful project, I feel like it, it, you just iterate differently, you think about it differently from a place of how can we make this so it resonates with people the most because I'm not optimizing for money or clicks or whatever it is. And then just naturally they become something that um, just really uh, strikes a chord with people in the world. Yeah, this is one of the really big takeaways I got when I studied the psychology of creativity for my master's. That apparently there's a lot of research pointing out that, you know, what the psychologists call intrinsic motivation, which I call doing it for love, mm -hmm. that is really highly correlated with creativity. And the extrinsic, I thinking about money or praise or criticism or any kind of reward, is actually a creativity killer. So, uh, you know, I just found it really reassuring to hear that the scientists had come and come down on the side of the artists with this one for once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and because you're absolutely right, is the thing that makes the project magical is is that mm -hmm. sense that it's a gift or something mm -hmm. that you're doing out of sheer mm -hmm. love, and then afterwards you can. Look and also, it. to be honest, I feel like we're at a time where, like, just to give you an example, Creative Mornings to me is the, the magic I see when somebody comes to Creative Mornings for the first time and it's a free lecture in the morning and they're super friendly people and you get a coffee, somebody hands you a coffee with a smile and people show up for the first time and I can see a first timer a mile away because they have their right. guard up. Because when do you ever trust someone that gives you anything for free? Because there's always a catch, right? There's always, they yeah, won't, you, yeah. you know, it, you just don't trust it. And you can see them kind of go like, this is this for real? And eventually you see them letting them guard down and, and they relax into the experience and they realize, wow, these people are nice and this is for real. And then we get uh, the feedback forms afterwards after the events and it's we get it every single time. People say like, this is magical. How, how, how can this exist? Like, this feels like a gift and people are friendly and open and generous and you didn't pitch me anything. <laughs> and people are just ready to feel like they, people don't trust anything anymore. And, uh, and, and I feel like these projects and these companies that feel honest, uh, people just connect with them. So could you give us a little more detail on, on exactly how Creative Mornings work for anyone who's listening to this who's new to it? Because whenever I recommend it to somebody, I get this look of amazement and say, really, does that exist? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I say, yes, and, and it probably exists near you. And then we go through the, you know, the, 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 the city map and say, look, here's your, here's your mm -hmm. local one. So 
What exactly is Creative Mornings? Creative Mornings is um, something I started uh, almost 10 years ago here in New York because, as I mentioned, I moved to New York. I didn't know a soul. I ended up staying longer than three months. And I remember in the very beginning not finding my people. Uh, I didn't have the money to go to paid designer events. And um, I just remember like trying to break into New York City and making my, you know, my circles of friends and and how I just always wished there was a really easy, uh, um, accessible event series for just people that believe in creativity. I was also bothered by the, by the notion that, you know, I would go to information architect events and then I would go to designer events and, and then a fr- I had a friend who was an architect and he would take me to those. And I was like, why, why is this siloed? In the end of the day, we all believe in a higher uh, sort of religion of creativity and the magic happens when you when you break down these these trade walls and then fast forward a few years later i opened a a co-working space before co-working spaces were a thing i just i went on my own as a designer and uh, found a space in dumbo brooklyn and i just figured you know what let me just build it out and then i have a feeling people there's other people like me that just want to you know not be alone all the time and i completely hit a nerve and what was supposed to be a four people space ended up being a 65 people space. We had a huge wait list. We had like so many interesting people that did incredible work on the web uh, join us. And I realized that, that every day going to this space and having writers, developers, photographers, illustrators, type designers around me, you know, it was like a mini agency at your fingertips. I could turn around and say, hey, Jessica, can you look at this? Or, you know, hey, Cameron, can you, what do you think of this, you know, website I built, whatever. It was like built in uh, just feedback and just support. And, and I realized, wait a second, I have this every day and this is beautiful. But there is like an entire city filled of people that, you know, we could make this so much bigger. So I just started as an experiment opening up the door one Friday morning a month here in New York uh, and just for breakfast. I figured I want this to be accessible. If, if, if this was Tina that came here in 99 and has no money, you know, conference. Mm-hmm. I, I used to go to a lot of conferences and they're wonderful, but they're so elitist and a lot of people can go and I, w- I would write about them on my blog and people would say like, man, I just wish my company could send me, but I can't afford to take it, yada, yada. So that was for me. I want to create something that is completely accessible for anyone. You just need to be fast enough to sign up. And so I ran this in New York for, for two years and companies started knocking on my door saying, hey, do you, you can come in here, we'll host you. And it's so sim- it's such a simple concept. One Friday morning, uh, free breakfast, uh, a 20-minute talk, hanging out with people in the creative industry, and then you go to work. And now fast forward almost 10 years later, uh, we have grown into uh, 180 cities. We bring 20,000 people together every month for free. And it's a network of uh, 1,500 volunteers in these different cities that put on these events. It's a really beautiful engine of generosity. And a very powerful one. I mean, that's that's phenomenal, mm-hmm. that global reach. So where can people go? What's, what's the URL so people can go and find their local? Uh, it's creativemorningsplural.com, creativemornings.com. And yeah, we're in 65 cities in, 100 and, uh, in 65 countries in 180 cities. And, uh, and if somebody is in a city where it doesn't exist, uh, on the bottom of our page, there's a how to apply for a chapter button. Um, we, we love getting, I mean, I'm secretly dreaming that somebody in Tokyo will hear this because we don't have a chapter in Tokyo and it's breaking my heart. So somebody please bring it to Tokyo. <laughs> well, my wife and I, we have friends in Tokyo. She's Japanese. Yeah. So let's, let's see if we can make yeah. that happen. <laughs> okay. And also if, obviously if you're listening to this in Tokyo, then please, please contact us, go to creative mornings com or contact me via the the show contact page uh, and let us know and you know let's make it yes, happen. Yes, please. <laughs> so and another of your projects that you've mentioned already is Tatley, mm-hmm. and I'd like could you talk about this a little bit? And also, one reason I would like you to talk about it is because it's so different <laughs> to Creative Mornings. I know. So. It's- Whenever people ask me, what do you do? I am so flabbergasted because I just <laughs> I, I do so many different things. But it all boils down to basically this one um, rule of life I have. And that is uh, if I catch myself repeatedly complaining about something, I have two options. Either do something about it or let it go. Um, and 
I, I just have this thing that I like to do something about these things. <laughs> so, um, for right. example, Tatley was uh, started because I um, my daughter came home from a birthday party. Um, this was six years ago, six and a half years ago, you know, and the, the whole goodie bag thing here in America, and there's just shitty toys in them, and there were these really hideous temporary tattoos that she asked me to put on her. And I, I caught myself complaining yet again. And I was like, Tina, you just got to stop. Either you got to let this go or you got to change the, you know, the world of temporary tattoos. And then I sat down for a second. I was like, wait a second. I have so many friends who are illustrators who are also complaining about how broken the licensing world is. I'm a web designer. I just put two and two together. I started researching what it takes to produce temporary tattoos. I was like, I'm just going to do this as a, you know, as a side project. And I reached out to my friends and, you know, the Jessica Hishes in the world and Jason Cinemaria and, and Julia Rothman and everyone wrote back right away, hell yeah, let's make some tattoos. That's fun. And but was maybe two months later, we we launched Tatley.com sort of as a the concept was licensing really beautiful art from professional artists and then selling them as temporary tattoos. And I thought at the time, yeah, that's that's a fun side project. I'm gonna send out maybe, you know, I don't know, 50 orders a, a month, maybe a hundred if you know it's a good month. And uh, but the second day uh, after the, I launched, you know, and this is where my blog came in. Like I've never really pushed something. I, I've never monetized or pushed something that I, uh, that I created. So I wrote about it in July of 2011 on my, on my blog and said, Hey guys, I just started this little thing called Tatley. And the orders came in. It was like one of these magical internet moments. And I st- stood next to the printer going, hi, whoa, what's happening? And then the next day I got a call from the, the Tate, uh, modern, a uh, buyer in London, and he, you're joking. Hmm? The yes, next day, the next day, it was on the second day, wow. and uh, he congratulated me on my wonderful brand and asked me how long I was in business, and I kind of marbled something there, and then and then he said, <laughs> "Could I have a wholesale catalog?" And I remember being super cool on the phone. I don't even know how I got my number because I, I don't think he was on our site, but and I said, "Sure." No problem. And I wrote everything down. I was like, I oh, will send it to you. And I remember hanging up the phone and looking at my studio mates going, hey, guys, what exactly is a wholesale catalog? Does this mean they want it in a store? <laughs> and then we, you know, we ramped up. We made packaging. It was one of these like now or never moments. And then yeah. I think the biggest moment to me was when about six months later we were uh, in the MoMA store. And I remember going there in the Springsteed store in Soho. And I stood there like a complete crazy woman next to it you know it has a little sign and it talks about the designer and uh it had my name on it and and i stood there and i watched people interacting with the product i made i mean i've never set out to make a physical product i was a web designer and i and i I noticed how people would look at me like why is she standing there and sometimes when they look at me i was like i made that i I was a total creep but i was like a highlight of my life to actually have accidentally created a product that the mom i wanted to carry and and this this is really extraordinary because you know there's so many creatives you know would quite naturally go into places like Tate Modern and MoMA and noses pressed against the glass and think, if only I could get in there. Mm-hmm. And I accidentally and did yet it. And you made it happen. And you, yeah. Well, uh, yes, accidentally or maybe indirectly, because I mean, I think this kind of closes one of the loops from earlier on when you talked about you, you started your blog, you started Creative Mornings as, as a gift, mm-hmm. as something that you were putting out there and sharing. And yet it was all those connections that made it happen yeah. for you. Like when you had something to bring to market. Yeah. And also I do feel um, I the generosity of me, just that the, the outward generosity I had with my blog and then all of a sudden m- my readers being able to actually support me. I really do think that in, in life in general, if you have an attitude of helping people and being generous, eventually it all comes back to you. And I'm not doing this, you know, in a calculative way. It just that was just one of those days where I realized, oh wow, yeah. If they if I ask them to support me, they will, and, and that was a beautiful moment. And part of what I'm hearing that the magic was here is that you could never have predicted that that's what you would have one day done. No, <laughs> you know that the blog would have helped you to do. It's not like you said, well, I'm going to set the blog up so in six years' time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it doesn't work quite work like that. So. You have a to-do app. <laughs> yes. To-do. Yeah. Nice. You did, you did that well. You pronounced that well. It's a hard one. Well, I've, I've been practicing. <laughs> <laughs> You've got your lecture mornings. Yes. You have 
Catley, the, the tattoo shop, the co-working space. I mean, what is the common thread? Or is there a common thread between all these things? Well, on one hand, it's, it's the, you know, don't complain, make things better, uh, which all of these, you know, are things that I wanted to exist and I created them. Um, but then I would say with the co-working space and creative mornings, and probably in some sense, Tatley is my desire to create community. I've always been, I've always been someone who just loves to bring people together and especially people that, you know, have sort of, uh, sort of big hearted, creative, uh, generous people. And, and, uh, I'm a big believer that if you surround yourself with sort of people that have common values that, you know, and then they support you and you support them, like you just, you, you're able to be just more daring and creative in life. Um, and community is just the basic building block of life. And I think it's a bit lost in our society and creative mornings creates an incredible community for people, you know, that believe in living a creative life. And then my co-working space is what I call my happy place. And, uh, and I just know that if, if I want to know honest feedback from people, that I can trust and that will, you know, be honest with me and give me feedback, not just sugarcoated, um, and push me to, you know, be, do better work than, uh, th- you know, it makes my life better. Community is everything. And unfortunately it's a buzzword right now because every, pro- every, every company thinks they have to build a community. And I was like, uh, just because they buy your product doesn't mean that there's a community around it. So again, you know, this is one of the things I'm interested in is maybe the difference between an audience and a community. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the mark of a real community? I think to me, a community is where you you feel like you feel safe, you you feel supported, you feel heard, and it has like a, a common set of values that hold you together. And my my big definition of a community is that a community is not a community until it organizes itself. So, for example. Uh, creative mornings is something that we couldn't even turn off anymore. What we see happening in this 1500 people volunteer community is, is makes my heart explode on a regular basis and we couldn't turn it off. And that, that to me is that's community. Same with my coworking space. Um, I've, I've created a space. I've set the tone with values. I, I kind of pick a bit the people that I want in, but just seeing how they self-organize and, and, and do stuff together and create and collaborate and, you know, and support each other is that, again, that, that's beyond me and, and, and you, can't, you can't control that. You know, you just got to let it happen and unfold. And from big community to a, a much smaller one, one of the amazing facts I came across when I was researching for the interview, somebody said that you had started your agency when your first child was born. <laughs> is, that, is that really Yes, true? yes. So that, uh, while I wouldn't advise anyone to do that, but I, I had this thing when I, so as I mentioned earlier, my, both of my parents were entrepreneurs. And for some reason, I always knew I wanted to run my own studio, but I don't know why I n- never decided to do that, you know, in my, in my 20s. I guess maybe it had to do with me living in a foreign country and, and maybe there was hesitation around that because my English was not as good or, you know, I, I don't know why, but it never hit me that I need to eventually take this step of running my own studio until I became pregnant with my daughter, my first, my first kid. And in this pregnancy, I did this, like, um, I took inventory of my life, of, you know, the, my dreams that I had and things that I've accomplished or things that I still want to accomplish. And I just, I gave birth to my daughter and I basically said, and now I'm starting my own design studio. I started it the day she was born. And interestingly enough, uh, the universe unleashed itself on me. And I'm a real believer that sometimes when you make a decision and you're actually a little scared, but then for some reason things just start falling into place. To me, that's a sign that the universe says, just basically waves its pom-poms at you and says, go, go, go. <laughs> and my very first client was Demoma and they, they hired me to uh, design their internet, redesign their internet. And it, it was like the biggest kind of like pom-poms swinging up the universe ever. And, and, and I ran, but then funny enough, uh, Three years later, when I became pregnant with my son, I did this whole inventory thing again and realized I really didn't like having clients and, and I was miserable, even though I had, you know, my design studio was doing well and I had, you know, more work that I could handle. But then I did the bold decision of just saying I want to do a one-year sabbatical and 
So my kids are really the big turning point in my life. Like I, my, my daughter's birthday is when I uh, started my own design studio. My son's birthday is when I basically started creating my own products and uh, let go of clients. So it's a, it's a real, every, their birthdays always get me really emotional because they're big turning points in my life. And, you know, I'm curious because a lot of people, becoming a parent is a wonderful thing, but it's also a sense, a, a time when responsibilities suddenly weigh very, very mm-hmm. heavy on them and they become very risk averse. And I can imagine quite a lot of people saying, well, that would be the last time I would think of starting a company. What would you say to that? I mean, why was it different for you? I, I get this all the time, and I never really know what to say. I think I had just a, I have a I have a real grounded optimism that things will work out, and and but, but that's one thing. I have this weird thing that I I can I kind of can assess how much of because to me it wasn't that much of a risk. But I think to someone else it would have been. But I, I mean, I'm 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 a Capricorn. I still make sure it's you know I kind of it's calculated risk. So to me, it didn't feel like it was a big risk. I think it's a very personal thing. What do you think is risky and not? But also, I must say, like at the time, I also had, um, uh, I was still married and I had an incredibly supportive husband that just, you know, we not that he supported me financially, but I knew that I had of like he said, you know what, go and try your, uh, you know, your sabbatical. And, you know, in case your blog income goes down, we'll, we'll figure it out. You know, I, I mean, there's always a way. I always feel like if you're a somewhat smart person, you'll find a way to figure it out. Like if I had to all of a sudden find a job again, I would have taken a job. So I don't, I'm trying not to let fear guide me because I'm a big believer that what you fear, you attract. And, and I'm really trying to always stay grounded. And there have been times in my life where I wasn't able to be that positive outlook, this is going to work out kind of person. But in general, I am. Uh, so to me, this, it wasn't that much of a risk to try these things because I knew I'm, I'm smart and I work hard and I could always fall back into a, a job if it didn't work out. In, uh, you know, in practical terms, how have you found it running a business, being a creative, doing all these amazing projects and, and still raising the children? To be very honest, I don't know how people do it that are in a job and raise children because mm. to me there is... I have some friends who are, you know, in really demanding positions and some of them have bosses that are not understanding at all that sometimes when you have children, especially when they're small, sometimes, you know, things come up and you might be half an hour late because, you know, I don't know, whatever happened or or you, you have to juggle childcare or they're sick. I don't know. I mean, to me, I could never do this being in a work, I actually couldn't do it. I don't know how people do it. Raising children here in New York uh, that work in, a, in an environment where be- they basically, you know, they have no control over their time. And one of the things that I always done, um, I have one person that works with me at Tatley that has children. And I remember when I offered her the job and we were still so small and I was actually embarrassed about what I could offer her. I said, listen, I'm so sorry, but this is the salary I can give you right now. This is like five years ago. And she said, listen, that's totally fine. Um, if you really give me the freedom that you say you give people that work for you in terms of, you know, I'm a big believer life happens. If your kid is sick and you need to work from home, then you do that. Mm-hmm. And and so I think the world needs just more human leadership, like just understanding that life happens and, and sometimes the job just doesn't go first. I mean, it's not that people are dying if we don't sell temporary tattoos. So... I honestly couldn't do it if I wasn't in control of my time. I think I'd be too stressed out of letting everyone down. <laughs> well, I love that because, again, it's it's a lovely answer to the question about risk. So for me, um, you know, my wife's self-employed like me, and that gives us the flexibility. We can arrange mm-hmm. things. You know, we think it's much easier for our family this way mm-hmm. than it would be if, like you say, if we weren't in control yeah. of our time. You know, we still need to get work done, but, you know, there's a lot more flexibility yeah, in the system. And, uh, and I actually, I'm a bit worried at my children because my, my ex-husband and we're, we're, we're co-parenting beautifully 50-50. And uh, he also is an, is an independent. He's a kitchen designer, runs his own business. And we, whenever we need to make time for our children, we can. And I sometimes wonder if my kids actually realize that there's, there's a whole lot of reality out there. Um, let alone whenever my kids love coming to my work. My offices are fun. There's swings and confetti drawers and just lots of fun people. And, you know, it's creative and it's bustling. And and sometimes I wonder, like, wow, I, I'm curious what's going to happen when my daughter is going to do her first inter- internship in some corporate, cubically, you know, uh, 
environment and she's going to go back. It's like, mom, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> Why didn't you tell me about this? <laughs> so, you know, you've exchanged clients for employees. Mm-hmm. What's the big difference? Well, I exchange clients to me being my own client, I would say. <laughs> um, uh-huh. I, it was interesting when I run my own de- ran my own design studio, uh, I realized that I just don't have a thick skin for I, I can't let I can't let people down. I'm someone who if you hire me, I will give you the best work I have in me. And if if you're still not happy, it will crush my soul. <laughs> and that's what was happening. And you know, sometimes, you know, it's just sometimes you can't win at service industry. You just can't. But I just couldn't get over that. If if a client was unhappy with a website I would design or which it wasn't often, but it still happened. It just really crushed my soul. So then when I decided to start my own projects and my 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 own products, I realized, wow, being a client is really hard. I have so much empathy now for people that hired me. And I remember these, this one client who just wouldn't get back to me. And I, I was sitting there and I was like, what do I do next? Like, I need feedback. I can't move on. I remember this so vividly. And he was running a big company, you know? I mean, it was hard for him to... To, to give me the feedback sometimes. I, I can only imagine the fires he was putting out on a daily basis. And now I'm that person that, that is the bottleneck and I'm trying to be so good about that. And when I work with designers, I am so empathetic to to how it was when I was on that side. And um, I, and I just love running my own product. I, I love really shaping something that has my values in it and that... I can shape over a long period of time. I just had a really hard time with this service industry model where I would come in, help shape it, and then they run away with it again. And and I realized I just, I'm someone who likes to chisel away at something. You know, so this prototyping of an idea and making it better and iterating. And that's that's where I thrive and what I love. And do you find any conflict between yourself as a creative and yourself as a leader or manager? Uh, a conflict. I don't know. Can you elaborate on that question? Well, a lot of creatives find it difficult when they go from being the person who's doing the hands-on making or designing or, or writing or whatever to being the person who's leading the team. And so their job is to facilitate other people Mm-hmm. making rather than doing it themselves and you know this temptation that they, they miss the work the hands-on aspect or they're tempted to micromanage or they find that it's you know having all these challenging conversations can be very different to being you know challenged by mm-hmm. the back no actually I, I, this question is being asked a lot and i find it so interesting because no i don't miss it i'm I just feel like I'm 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 still designing, but I'm designing in a different way. I'm designing environments now where people can thrive. Um, in, in in the end, I'm designing a big machine. Like I, my favorite thing actually is to come up with a concept for a company, and I, I always look at it as like you put together a machine, and and you have to make sure that it's running smoothly and. And I look at this as as a design experiment in itself as well. And I'm quite happy that I'm not pushing pixels anymore. And that I loved it when I was doing it, and I was good at it. But it's my, for example, my design team at Tatley, they're incredibly talented, and I love I love being able to empower them and say like, hey, go run. I'm a I'm a very trusting boss. If I hire you. I will probably empower you more than you've ever experienced. I trust people sometimes with things I probably shouldn't trust them, but then seeing them grow into a into a role and learning and you know sort of flourishing is is that's my design challenge right now. That's that's what I that's what I enjoy right now. And then you know I'm I'm I think sometimes it's a bit hard for my team because I'm I'm the CEO, but I'm also the in some sense the the chief creative officer, I will sometimes say like, listen, it's not really my my aesthetic, but I, I try to not micromanage and really pull myself back and 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 let them just be on their own. And the the design, the overall designing of of teams, of of how a company runs, of designing an environment where you know that reflects my values and people thrive in. That's that's what I enjoy right now. So the business itself is a design project. I think so, yes. Right, that's a beautiful way to look at it because then it's expanded, you know, it's not, you haven't yeah, lost also, anything. Yeah, isn't life itself a design project? <laughs> well, I think God would agree with you on that one. <laughs> so final question, 
a final quote that I would like to ask you about is you said we should always be willing to sprinkle a little nonsense mm-hmm. into the work we <laughs> yeah, do. I'm a big believer of that. Yeah, I, I'm a big believer that when people are having fun, they they do better work. So if if you look at everything I do, um, all my projects, there there's the common thread of there's always a little silly in it, and and I do believe that you know um, everything's so so serious these days, and and people actually when you surprise them with a bit of silly, you really get into their heart, and and there's nothing better mm-hmm. than you know sprinkling a little bit of of uh, like just sprinkling the the possibility of the smile into things you create, and uh, just to give you examples and in, in creative mornings. When you like a video, a talk, uh, it, it rains hearts from from um, uh, from the sky. Uh, the the city <laughs> chapters have colors, and uh, on our page where you see all of the cities, there's 180 colors, and you can you know there's sorting. You can sort the cities by when they launched and stuff, obviously, but you can also sort by rainbow. It's just silly, and so, oftentimes we get oh, we get that's, yeah, that's it's very right. important <laughs> stuff like that, or we. Um, uh, we have a confetti drawer where you can, when you check out Tatley, you can actually add confetti to your order and then the sticker gets on the package. Uh, oh, no. Yeah, really? it has warning uh, <laughs> confetti inside, uh, stuff like that. So I really believe that these small little um, sprinkles of silliness actually make the product or make a service and, and, and really connect with, with the audience. Wow, thank you. That, what a lovely place <laughs> thank to finish. You. <laughs> so at this point, in the show, I always like to ask my guests to set the listener a creative challenge. Mm-hmm. So something that somebody who's listening to this can go away and do within seven days mm-hmm. that will maybe add a little more nonsense, a little more creativity into their life. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have one challenge. It's maybe not nonsense, but it's it's a nonsense, but it's a it's a a challenge of generosity. Mm-hmm. It's something that I started about six months ago when I realize that oftentimes I think a compliment, but I don't say it. And I have this new rule that if I think a compliment, I will say it on the spot. So this can be, you know, if somebody handled uh, an email, a difficult email really well on my team, or somebody handled a different difficult conversation in a meeting, or if somebody is just as simple as, you know, the barista is wearing a really cool pin, whatever it is, I've, I've forced myself to let these positive thoughts actually known to the person, uh, right. you know, on the other yeah. side. And it's beautiful what happens. You know, we, I feel like we, humans, they're all kind of lonely and they want to be seen and heard. And so if you, if you think a compliment, say it, just try it for a week and see what happens. What a beautiful challenge. Thank you, Tina, for that. And for sharing so generously as, as always. Um, I'm getting a lot of inspiration from listening to you as always. And thank um, you for having me. I'm sure people listening at home or wherever they're listening will will have similar so where can we go to find you on the internet and it's going to be several places in your yes. case um yeah i mean i'm i'm swiss miss on twitter i'm uh, my blog is also called called swiss miss that's swiss-miss.com um i'm swiss miss on instagram uh i'm Tatly are my temporary tattoos. That's T-A-T-T-L-Y dot com. And then Creative Mornings is my lecture series. Excellent. And I'll make sure to add all of those to the show notes as well, in case you didn't <laughs> manage to scribble all of that down. So that's at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. <laughs> um, you'll click and find it all there. So thank you, Tina. That's been wonderful. Thank you so much, Mark. You have been listening to The 21st Century Creative, hosted by me, Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned, as well as all the archived episodes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets on carving out an original creative career, 
you can sign up at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative interested in getting my help as a private coaching client, you can learn about how I help my clients at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.